Also, uh, just in light of Vacation Bible School, uh, I thought we thought about, okay, what would be like a next step? So say if people come to Vacation Bible School, um, parents are involved, like we're trying to smooth the way to try to help assimilate people, get them into the church in a smooth way. We're going to conduct another Art of Marriage event. And we did this about three years ago. How many of you came to that three years ago? I was trying to remember. Okay, quite a few of you. Uh, we're going to do that again. And uh, that's the, the, the spirit of my message this morning is that we need to be reminded about it as well. But I don't want to say, hey, we're going to have this Art of Marriage event and then have none of us here. And so, you know, we've got like three families, the Brandons and who, who, the Guskies and the visiting family. So if you would be interested in that, that would be a, a wonderful thing. I'd love to have a dozen families, kind of what I'm saying. So you might do that. You might have some friends uh, to be involved in that. Um, you might say, hey, this would be a good thing. A, a, a dozen families uh, want to do that. What this is, it's, it's, a, it's a day and a half video event where these, these videos are shown and they're, they're top-notch. The video quality is, is excellent. You can, talk to, you can talk to people about that. And I just know that... We all need reminders about that. Now, you're excused if you're practicing everything that you learned three years ago. But if you still have some need to grow in your, your marriage, that would be a, a wonderful thing. But we're just trying to, to provide that and to, to give a, an opportunity for those coming to Vacation Bible School. Kind of think, okay, well, here's, here's another thing. Maybe this will help for our marriage. We'll also promote it like we did in the neighborhood. We'll, maybe we'll go across the street and, and pass it out. We passed it out. We got one family from the neighborhood. Uh, maybe we'll get some, some more families again. Just engaging stories, testimonies, interviews, uh, pastors, church leaders. It's, it's, a really, it's really kind of a, a fun thing. Uh, along with that comes a um, you know, book. You know, it's really nice. I mean, th- this kind of gives you the quality of, of what it is. If you're curious about it, there's enough people who came. And I have seen this more than any of you have because not only did I preview it for last year, I also watched it and I've used it in several times for... Um, uh, for marriage counseling. It just really sets the stage for what marriage is and really helps people uh, with a, a marriage, um, j- just, just setting direction with that. This has been, even with unsafe people, I, I've just shown them that. So maybe there's some people at work you can invite. Maybe people in your neighborhood, you know, you're struggling. We're, we're thinking about even bringing this to our neighborhood um, and just kind of pass around some flyers. Hey, would you like to come on a, on a night? It's real easy because it's a video thing. If you want to do that, you're, you're welcome to do that, but inviting things. And as I've watched it through many times, I, I found it helpful every time. Just when you go from the purpose of marriage to the problems of marriage, the roles in marriage to romance in marriage, just helpful counsel to, to help a marriage. So I would encourage you, if you can, can do that, lays a lot of foundational issues. And with that, this is the spirit of my message this morning. My message is entitled, A Marriage Reminder. Now, this is uh, just some basic things. It's not, not really covering that, but I, I, I covered in the, um, some of these things are covered in the art of marriage. But I just want to remind us again of what some foundational things are to marriage. Um, and in light of our culture today, some of the things that we need to say and embrace about marriage. So my message this morning is, it's practically totally topical. I don't even have a text that particular text we're going to go through. We're going to go through several different texts this morning as we, we look at this. But with that long introduction, let's look at my first point. Here it is. Marriage is created by God. And of course, the best place to turn to when you think about marriage being created is what? Help me now. The book of Genesis. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. 
We see the, the creation of man. And maybe if you've been to marriages, weddings um, recently, you've heard these read. My daughter's in the marriage season, and I think in the past three weeks, she's been to probably four or five weddings. <laughs> yes? I don't know. So she's been to a lot of weddings. Summer is that. You probably hear this over and over again. But it does bear repeating because we see in chapter 2 the first marriage. It is instituted by God. It was created by God. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You think about that is amazing. That God would take this that was not alive and fashion it into something that is alive. Scientists have been trying to do this. Um, you know, if we think about the technology increased in our day and age to try to do this, and we've not been able to in any way. If we see, we understand how it's formed, but we cannot take inanimate material and make life out of it. And, and this, this something that was alive was not some half-cocked machine. Okay, it was not some clumsy machine doing some kind of robotic task. No, this is the most complex organism that has ever been found in the universe. Capable of movement, capable of thought, capable of relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with others. And we see a, another created being in the, later in the chapter, the first woman. Now, she didn't come from the dust of the ground. She came from the side of the man. We read in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's what we see. We see the first marriage. Moses looking back on the event in verse 24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and become one's flesh. That is, there's the two becoming one in marriage. It is a man and a woman joining together to be one flesh. And that's, that's, one marriage. that's what marriage is. It's a man and a woman put together for life. It's God's design. Now, that's not what society is telling us today. And, uh, of course, if you are um, at all attuned to the news, if you don't know what's happening in our society today with same-sex marriage, then you have got your head in the sand. But the Bible clearly says it's one man, one woman for life. In fact, turn over to... to um, to Matthew chapter 19, because we see here the, the design of marriage in the beginning is what we read in Genesis chapter 2, but we see Jesus repeating the same thing. Now he's coming here into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. That's right where John the Baptist was, was baptizing and had his ministry. And, and, and by this time when Jesus was there, John the Baptist had been put to death. Herod had his head cut off. And you say, why was he put to death? He was put to death because he was preaching against the marriage of Herod. Herod had divorced his first wife, the daughter of Aretas, Arabian king of the Nabataeans. He divorced this wife so out of lustful desire he could have his brother's wife. 
sort of in an incestual relationship in some regards, taking his brother's wife while he is still alive and his divorce was wrong and his marriage was wrong and John the Baptist let that be known. And he wasn't shy about preaching that and that's what got him in prison for preaching to Herod about his wrong marriage. Herod, of course, put him in prison and tried to silence things and Herodias, you know the whole deal about the dance and ordered his head on a platter. Well, it's just natural then that this issue of marriage would come up. This issue of divorce would come up. And the Pharisees, as it says here in verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him about divorce. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They would like nothing more than to see Jesus' head on a platter. That's why the purpose of of asking it there, you can even see they, they tested Jesus asking him these things. And he said exactly what Genesis 2 says. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And when it came to the question of divorce, Jesus said, what did Moses say? Let's go back to the creation of Count. Right, right back to Moses. And he divined marriage. The man leaving and cleaving to a woman with one flesh. And they're joined together. He says, let not man separate it. And when they are separated in divorce, it's very painful. Painful is a result of sin. Look at verse 8. He said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I just say this. Divorce hurts because sin hurts. I mean, you just picture your flesh being torn apart. And I think that's pretty accurate about the pain of divorce. And those of you who have experienced it here in our body know that. I don't want to belabor that. But I just say those who have been divorced need our compassion, not our condemnation, which often comes to the church. But my aim isn't talking about divorce, but Jesus is there. But my aim is to talk about marriage. When he divide, talked about marriage, he made it clear it's a man and a woman. And they should not separate. That's biblical marriage. Now, of course, in our day and age, things are changing. Right? I mean, just it was at the end of, of April, uh, the Supreme Court heard the, I think it's Obergefell versus Hodges case, to see whether or not same-sex marriage should be legal in our land. Right now, it's legal in 37 states. And it's illegal in the other 13, I think. So it's kind of coming to Christ. What, what's, the, what's the court going to do? And the, the decision will be out uh, in, the, in June. I would be shocked if the Supreme Court doesn't say anything other than same-sex marriage is the law of the land. That's just, that's just where we are. Um, but I say this, that based upon Genesis 2, based upon Matthew 19, call it what you want, it's not marriage. That's why it has to be defined as same-sex marriage. I love what Sam Crabtree said when um, he's a, a, some kind of pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church, executive pastor, something. I, I forget exactly what it is. But in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a couple years ago, the, a, uh, uh, um, a referendum was happening, and he saw these signs in Minneapolis. It says, vote no, don't limit the freedom to marry. And listen to what he wrote. He wrote this, don't limit the freedom to marry is like saying don't limit the freedom to draw square circles. 
So-called gay marriages are just as oxymoronic. No matter what label is put on it, two men and two women, in conjugal union, it's impossible for it to be a marriage. No matter how much freedom we try to legislate, legislation does not make orange blue. and It doesn't make triangles become spheres or homosexual unions to have one head. As in Christ is the head of the church, which is the point of marriage, to point to Christ in the church. That's why so-called gay marriage isn't marriage. If we call that marriage, we'll have to find another term for real marriage. See, there's a distinction between one man, one woman marriage and homosexual unions, and the distinction is the point. No matter how free they are, no matter how committed to each other they are, two lines do not make a triangle. They don't have that freedom. Two lines are only connected. They do angling. They don't do triangling or curving or parabola or cursive penmanship. We're not free to call light dark. What marriage is, is a thing in dispute. And so I just, I just put that before your mind to think about just the Bible talks of one man, one woman. That's biblical marriage. And maybe when they talk about same-sex marriage, maybe the term that's going to be start used by the church is we're going to talk about biblical marriage. I don't know. That is, that's what marriage is. They're just hijacking this term. John Piper says here, the point here is that the so-called same-sex marriage shouldn't exist, but that it doesn't and it can't. Those who believe that God has spoken to us truthfully in the Bible should not concede to that commitment. Lifelong partnership and sexual relationships of two men or two women is, is marriage. It isn't. God created and defined marriage, and what he has joined together in that creation, that definition cannot be separated, still called marriage in God's eyes. So I just say this. To understand what the Bible teaches, you'll have a chance to speak that uh, around. Perhaps your neighbors, perhaps in schools, perhaps where you are, there's a difference between biblical marriage and marriage of our, our culture. That's why... I, uh, I think it was John Piper. He just encouraged whenever you talk about same-sex marriage, I always call it so-called same-sex marriage. Just kind of, kind of put it in there to stand for the Bible. Our country's trying to make that marriage, but however you do it, it's not biblically. So that's the foundation of marriage: uh, is that God created marriage. Marriage is created by God. Secondly, and I think this is a key here: marriage is a picture of the church. Again, that's a clear teaching of the Bible. This is something that I want all of you, husbands and wives, to think about as you aim in your marriage. And our marriages speak beyond just human realities. It speaks of divine realities. In fact, every wedding that I do, um, I always try to say, hey, we're gathered here together, and we're going to see a man and a woman who love each other be married together. But I want you who are in Christ, to think about the greater marriage that is being symbolized and pictured here. So as you see the happiness of the man, you see the happiness of the woman, and they, they, they love each other, just think about Christ and the church and the love the church has for Jesus. Uh, Jesus is our, our loving head and the love that we have for him. And so direct you to the, the greater day, the greater marriage that we have. And that's the teaching of Ephesians chapter 5. So why don't you turn there. Ephesians chapter 5. want to read these familiar words that come up in, in marriage, wedding ceremonies, oftentimes. Though sometimes they aren't. The people getting married are more on the liberal side, don't believe these things, <clears throat> which there are many, by the way. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. That's how a, a marriage should function. Now again, I'm speaking to the choir. This is just a reminder. It's something we need to think about again, think about afresh, that a wife willingly submits to her husband and a husband sacrificially loves his wife. That's what we're called to. It's God's design for marriage. See, God didn't design marriage so that so that husband and wife play the same role so that things are like 50-50 in everything. So you split bank accounts, you split decision-making, you split uh, this and that, you split your house duties so it's all 50-50. It, it's not. It's a, it's a head leading. It's a, it's a body following in loving leadership and in joyful submission in working in harmony. So it, it goes together. That's how God designed it that way. He could have designed it Two equal to equal roles, but he didn't. This is what God did. He, he did different roles, and this is by design so that it would picture the church. With Jesus as the head and us as the body. We are not equal in role to what Jesus does. We're not same in role to what Jesus does, but he is our, our loving head, and we submit and follow him. And by the way, it's just the same sex marriage, you need to think about this as well, is that those who have fallen to denying biblical roles in marriage, um, fall in the church also, and then leads to same-sex marriage, so-called same-sex marriage. And, and there are those who would deny even what I just said because they go back to verse 21 and talking about how it's all that we should do. Right, Verse 18, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And they'll say, oh, the submitting to one another governs this whole passage so that we all should be submitting to one another back and forth. And they point out rightly that there's no submit verb in verse 22, but verse 22 pulls from verse 21. But in those cases, when they say that, then they basically wipe out any distinction between the husband and the wife's role when, when all should be mutually submitting to one another. Now, now, there is, in any healthy marriage, there is this mutual submission. But in any healthy marriage, there is an understanding of the head and the body. And, and, and regarding same sex, you've got to know that they, they start here by denying this. They deny roles in the church, and then it, then it progresses. So, so, for instance, it goes this way. First of all, gender roles in the church fall. So, so you've got a church, and, and even though biblically you've got, you've got elders and deacons in a church family, and uh, they're explicitly said, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, that they should be men, they should be husbands of one wife, right? Um, they then let, let women come in, elders, deacons. 
Or are they, they give women platform to preach and teach the entire body, despite the fact that Paul says, I do not permit a, a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. But they let her, a woman teach, they let a woman exercise authority, and basically they take the, the role distinctions in the church body and they, they negate those. So that they cave on the gender roles in the church, first step. Then they cave in the gender roles in the home. Husbands aren't encouraged to be loving leaders of their home. Wives aren't encouraged to support and serve their husbands. Instead, there's this effort at, at equality. Now, I'm all for equality, okay? But equal roles on a team fails. Someone needs to throw the ball, someone needs to catch the ball, and someone needs to block. They're all part of a team, right? Someone needs to play goalie, and the other ten can't use their hands. It doesn't work that way. And for a successful team, every player needs to know his role and things go well unified. In a play, everyone plays their part. Everyone can't be the lead and everyone isn't just the supporting cast. There are different... And same in marriage. That it's not everyone doing the same things. It's a God-designed marriage. Different roles based on gender. But, but when the gender roles in the church fall, soon they fall in the home. And when they fall in the home, then they fall in marriage. Because, see, there's no distinction between a, a husband and a wife anymore because everything's the same. There's egalitarianism. And, and so those, those fall where men and we, women are equal in every way. There's no distinction. Why can't they get married? Because a, a man is like a woman. And they're the same, so why not get them married? And, and uh, I'll tell you, this path has been taken by many. Church, home, and then uh, same-sex marriage, so-called same-sex marriage. You, you just look, mainline denominations. It has taken this, this route. Women pastors, women bishops, same-sex marriage. And, and you can take, you just look at the mainline denominations. You have gay pastors, openly gay pastors and bishops. In every single case, that has been the, the progression. And I'll just say this. Where that progression is taken, those churches are failing. Their numbers are going down and down and down and down and down and down. And I think one of the first steps here is, is in the home. Right? Are you going to establish different roles within the home? Well, let's get back to Ephesians 5. I made this point about how this pictures the church. And um, the instructions here go back to the greater reality of, of Christ in the church. Look at the role of the wife. Wife, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In some regard, wives should look at their husbands as the Lord Jesus. We say that carefully and um, tenderly. But, so it says, submit to your husbands, ask to the Lord. So you submit to the Lord, so you do to your husbands. So you listen to your husbands, you hear what he says, you seek to understand, and you follow accordingly. That, I think, is what verse 22 says. Now, men, notice what verse 22 does not say. Verse 22 does not say, husbands, see to it that your wives submit to you as to the Lord. Did you catch the difference? It's not husbands demand your wives to submit to you. In fact, even there's a reflexive element here about wives yourselves submit to your own husbands. You do it of your own volition. There's no room for demanding submission upon an unfeeling wife. That's not how Jesus leads. When Jesus leads the church, yes, he is Lord. But he, even he says, yes, I am Lord and Master. But how do you, how, how do you lead? He served his disciples 
he, he demonstrated that with them. And so they said, Jesus, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. His ministry, by and large, is an ooing and a drawing ministry, drawn to the attractiveness of Christ. And, and there's a reason for this, because he gets no glory when his followers are forced into submission, but he gets great glory when his followers see his character and long to follow Jesus and to be like him. And they have, we'll find that when they have no greater joy than following after him. And so likewise here in verse 22. And so why are wives to submit to their husbands this way? Because they're picturing the church. The, head, the husband is the head of the wife, verse 23 says. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself the Savior. It means the husband is the head. He is the authority in the marriage. And so likewise, because he's the head of the marriage, just as Christ is the head of the church, he has the authority. So we, we follow after him. And we're called to submit in that way because wives, as you submit to your husbands in this way, you picture how we as a church should submit to Christ. And if people want to learn about the lordship of Christ, they should simply look at Christian marriages and look at the wives of every single one of you in this room and just say, huh, so that's what the church is like. And I'm saying that's saved people, that is unsaved people. Should look at our marriages and learn about the church. Now, when it comes to the husband role, it works the same way. In verse 25 and following, we see a husband's call is to love their wives. In fact, it, it comes twice, I think, because husbands are knuckleheads. Right? It says it there in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 28. In the same way a husband should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves the wife loves himself because, as verse 30 says, we are members of his body just as, as Christ loves his body, so we are to love our bodies. And, but, but, but they both come back to the picture of Christ lovingly and sacrificially giving himself to the church. Husbands, you should lovingly and sacrificially give yourself to your wives. You are one flesh with your wife. You should consider your wife as your own body, caring for her tenderly and kindly and, mer- and mercifully and, and nourishing it and, and cherishing it in whatever way you can. So husbands, I, I plead with you to so love your wives that when people, saved or unsaved, look at your marriage, they say, wow, what a, what a great Christ they serve that causes the example of this man to to bend and stoop and serve and love his wife in this way. This man loves his wife with such passion, Christ must love the church with similar passion. Let the world see and say, wow, what a wonderful Savior they have. Let our children see and say, wow, I want to follow a Christ that produces a, a husband as lovely as that. I could say it in my own words, but I'm going to read a, a, a lengthy portion from a book, Gospel-Powered Parenting, which, is, which explains this better than, than I can. Anything, anything I'd say would say the same thing because this, these, these five paragraphs are so impactful in my life. What, it, what is our marriage telling our children about Christ and His bride? They see it all. They hear our fights, absorb our attitudes. They know who or what really sits on the throne of our lives. They watch how we handle resentment. They hear the way we talk to each other. 
They know when we hear the Sunday sermon apply it. They also know when we ignore it. The message that our marriage preaches either repels or attracts our children. God wants your child to watch your marriage and think, I want a marriage like that, and I want the God that produced that. When I think of the beauty of the gospel, I think of my parents' marriage. I want to be part of the church that is loved by God the way my dad loves my mother. I want to be part of a church that finds its joy in submitting to Christ and my mother joyfully submits to my father. Christian marriage preaches the gospel. It either makes it attractive or ugly. When a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, washing her with the word, forgiving her, serving her, tenderly leading her, his marriage says that Christ loves his church. You can trust the groom. He's infinitely loving. Serve him. You won't be disappointed. And when a husband humbly loves a menopausal or premenstrual wife, his behavior says Christ loves the church even though she's sinful. His behavior tells his children Christ loves his bride even when she's unattractive. It says that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, even our failings. But when a husband is unfaithful to his wife, verbally belittles her, loves her children more than her, or takes her for granted, his marriage says Christ's love is not that great. He loves us only when we perform. You can't trust this Savior. You can't meet his expectations. He doesn't keep his promises. Why serve a fiscal fiscal despot? His deeds say many things can separate us from the love of Christ. And wives also preach, when mom joyfully submits to her husband as to the Lord, recognizing that he is her head as Christ is the head of the church, and that she is his body as the church is the body of Christ, it makes an attractive statement. When she does this for an unworthy husband, not because she trusts him, but because she trusts Christ to care for her, it points her children to Christ. Her behavior says Christ is trustworthy. It says, the Son of God is infinitely good, you can trust him. My father's very imperfect, but my mom trusts Christ to take care of her. If she can trust Jesus this way, I can also. But when a wife tells her children to obey Christ, yet doesn't trust him enough to take care of her relationship with an imperfect husband, but seeks to control him, resist his authority, refuses to respect him, and declines to serve him, her actions speak loudly. They say this, the Son of God cannot be trusted. He promises to exalt the humble, but I don't believe he'll exalt me. He says he'll take care of those who submit to lawful authority, but I don't really believe that. If I don't take care of myself, who will? And in most cases, her children will internalize what she does and not what she says. So in your marriages, husbands and wives, make the gospel attractive. I have known marriages that, well, on the outside looked pretty good. When I got in to talk with some kids one time, I remember, and they said, I don't ever want to be married because of the trials and troubles facing the marriage. And then just think about following Christ is like the next, the next step in some regards. Well, I want to finish with some real practical advice for your marriages. really comes from verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respect her husband. And I just say this. If you get this verse right, you'll do well in your marriage. Men, women, plunge deep into this verse. It summarizes a practical application of, of our marriage. Just by way of reminder, I know some of you, this is, this is totally reminder. I'm just calling you to it again. You, you can look at verse 33 about... These duties that we have, the husband has to love and the wife has to respect. Or you can look at these commands as helps. In other words, right, has it ever crossed your mind that the reason why husbands are called to love their wives is because wives need love? 
And wives, ever crossed your mind that the reason why husbands need, uh, why wives are called to respect their husbands is because husbands need respect. And it might just be that women are good at loving. And so they behave towards their husband in a way that they think is loving without considering that his primary need is respect. And so likewise, a wife will, a husband will respect his wife knowing that's his primary need and not tenderly love her. I think about one of the things that, that I hear is that, I say, of course I love you. Don't I go to work and provide for you? I don't have to say anything. Look at all that I've done. What's he doing? He's dealing on the realm of respect. But she feels unloved because he's just kind of, he's gone off to provide the funds and so that when he can sit home and watch his television. But see, he's respecting his wife. And a wife wants just love from her husband rather than affirming him in his, his actions and what he, what he does. But men have a, <clears throat> a need to be respected and women have a need to be loved. Douglas Wilson writes, We're often like the man who gave his wife a shotgun for Christmas because he wanted one. And a wife, when she's trying to work on a troubled marriage, she gives to him what she would like, not what God commanded and not what he needs. She loves him and she tells him so, but she does not respect him and tell him so. We have difficulty because we do not follow the scriptural instruction. The man, in communicating his love for his wife, should be seeking to communicate to her security provided in his covenantal commitment. He will provide for her. He will nourish her and cherish her. He will sacrifice for her and so forth. Her need is to be secure in his love for her. Her need is to receive love from him. And when a wife is respecting and honoring her husband, the transaction is quite different. Instead of consecrating on the security of the relationship, respect is directed towards the abilities and achievements. How hard he works. How faithful he comes home. How patient he is with the kids and so forth. The specific makes cause problems with some because she thinks that he might not come home if she thinks he doesn't work nearly hard enough. But love is to be rendered to wives and respect to husbands because God has required it and not because of any husband or wife has earned it. It is good for us to remember that God requires our spouses to render to us far more than any of us deserve. That's key there, that God has required us to render to others far more than any of us deserve. We need love and respect. Uh, Emerson Abridge wrote a book entitled Love and Respect. The subtitle is this, Love that she most desires and respect that he desperately needs. Love she desires, respect that he needs. And basically it's, it's a whole book on Ephesians 5.33. There's a lot of good in there. There's some bad in there. But there are some priceless Priceless diagrams that's worth the price of the book if you catch these diagrams right. I know that some of you even have this on your refrigerator. Here's, here's the first diagram in his book. It's called The Crazy Cycle. It works like this. The husband fails to love his wife. So the wife feels unloved. And so what does she do to her husband? She fails to respect him. And when she fails to respect him, what does he do? Help me now. He fails to love. And when he fails to love, she fails to respect. And what happened? We got, a, we got a downward cycle and it just keeps going more and more and more and more and more. 
And marriage problems don't happen overnight. They happen as this cycle has just driven down and down and down and down. So you think, how do you get out of that cycle? You just kind of reverse engines and start going the other way. This is what Egridge calls the energizing cycle. Is where a husband loves his wife, and so she respects him. And what does that cause? More love, more respect, more love, more respect. And then what happens in that marriage? Things go up and up and just kind of spirals around. You can think of it like a, uh, uh, the threads on a screw, and you're either screwing down or you're screwing up based upon the, the choices that you make. And, and the question really is this, is which way is your marriage headed? Is it headed in the, the crazy way or is it headed in the energizing way? Is it a downward spiral, lacking love and lacking respect, which leads to more lacking love and more lacking respect, which leads to more lacking love and more lacking respect? Or is it the upward spi- spiral, giving love and giving respect, which gives more love and gives more respect and gives more love and gives more respect? If it's only the crazy cycle, think about how can the crazy cycle be changed? How does it change? You're just like, all right, well, you did your part, I do my part. You did your part, I do my part. What, what's good? It's going to change when one stops, turns around and says, you know what? That knucklehead is not deserving of my love, but I'm going to give it anyway. And then the husband, not used to... Um, not, whatever, respect. You know what I'm talking about. That not, he's not deserving of my respect, but I'll respect him anyway. But, but he is so, he's still in love. And then she still respects and he's still in love. And finally then he loves a little bit. And kind of whenever you reverse engines, right? If you're, if you're in a boat and you're cruising along and you got your engine and then you reverse, what, what way is your boat going to go? It's going to it's going to start and then it's going to slow and then it's going to be by the time it starts kicking back, right? So there's going to be some difficult cycles in there. There's going to be some time. Some marriage problems don't happen overnight. They happen as the spiral goes. But it, this is what Emerson Negridge calls the rewarded cycle. It looks like this. So regardless how much a, a wife uh, respects her husband, he still loves her. And regardless of how much or little a husband loves his wife, she still respects him. And so what happens is that, that it goes regardless of, of whether it is merited or not, regardless of her respect or regardless of his love, it just takes, takes both going around. And there's always that cycle that can go. And I just encourage you in your families, in your marriages, to remind you again to follow this cycle for a joyful, happy marriage. In fact, this leads to our, our final point here this morning. I'm going to be short on this one. Okay, marriage is intended for our, our joy. Catch that. Marriage is intended for our joy. Um, it's not always obvious in some marriages. But when God created marriage in the first place, it was because of a lack. It's not good for man to be alone. Therefore, I'm going to give him something which is good for him. And he gave him a helper. He gave him a wife that was suitable for him. And then when man and woman were there, God said, this is very good. It wasn't good to be alone. It's good to be together. Companionship is a, is a joy of marriage. Friendship is a joy of marriage. To know and understand a person deeply is a joy. Parents, I know you like that when you're children. When you see your children grow up and 
you see the reactions or you get to know that the, there's just something about relationships. When you know people, there's enjoyment in knowing people. And a husband and wife, as you know people, and you get to know them deeper and deeper and deeper. That can be very enjoyable. There is a, a relational joy. There's a physical joy in marriage. There's a spiritual joy in marriage if you're engaged spiritually. Family worship, devotions, praying together. There's just this level that I know many, many husbands and wives don't pray together. You're just missing out on this joy of what that can be about. And when you grow together, you, you experience life together. Isn't there something in us when we see something exciting or something encouraging? Or, or maybe it works like this. You're, you're reading some kind of book. You know, you're sitting in, and, and you read a sentence that you, that was really good. Don't you just want to share that? Maybe you read it out loud. Um, there's something about life that we want, we want to share things with other people. And so likewise, there's that deep joy. Imagine just sharing, the, sharing new things together, back and forth, having shared relationships. There's this joy, this deep, deep settled joy that comes. Or how about secrets? There are some secrets that can be had between husband and wife that can give a lot of joy. Just like, I know this about you, you know this about me, and we're very happy in that, and we're not going to let that out. It's just like our little thing. You're like, like isn't, there, isn't there joy like in a, in a club? Like where you're like the exclusive people? Like, hey, we're on the inside, we know this. All of you in your marriage can be like on the inside. We know this and nobody else does. And it can be a very happy thing. Right, Yvonne? <laughs> David's talking with her. I said, right, Yvonne? I said, that can be fun. That can be fun. When you, when you build into each other for years, and so I, I'm thinking about this. I'm, I'm thinking about, Yvonne, I've been married, you know, almost half your life. Not quite, not quite. Almost half your life been living in cold Illinois. Thank you for your sacrifice and your respect for me. Um, I just think about the day when one of us passes away after we've been married for 70 years. I just think about the loss of companionship, share relationship. You've walked this path together for so long. All of a sudden you want to share something with your spouse your spouse isn't there anymore. It's like this emptiness, this whole, this, this enjoyment that you have had that you don't have anymore. And this joy of marriage, often a, a deep, well done, you know, like, like some big project, right? And this big project is done. We're doing VBS together. Right? This big project is done. And Friday night after our dinner, when you drive away, after having been exhausted the whole week long, you might kind of say, that was a job well done. And we trust, oh Lord, the results to you. I had that feeling this past Thursday as we did our last kids club. Um, it was a joy. It's kind of like Virginia, you're there. Mary Kay, Linda Kay, you're there. Just like a job finished. Just a monumental task. And we have VBS every week at kids club. I'm just thinking about time. Bible time for VBS is whatever, half an hour times five. That gives you two and a half hours of Bible time. We have, we have three hours of Bible time every week. Tons of stuff into these kids, and it's a big task. It's just every Tuesday and Thursday, like relentless. It's like, it's a job well done. There's deep satisfaction in doing that and sharing the gospel over and over with these kids, leading to opportunities in a relationship. 
I was talking with families, and one guy did a, a job for me, and I saw him, and they're moving, and so I got their address and talked about, hey, they're going to still kind of be here. I'm going to say they're going to miss your kids, and all the while sharing Christ with them over the years. I just think about the deep satisfaction of a, of a long life together is a joy of marriage. I think about team dynamics. Isn't there something, you play an athletic team, that... Um, when you win a game and everyone's played their part and you've got more points than the other team, it's like, yes! But there's, it's, it's together. There, there's something different in a basketball team winning a game than in a swimmer winning his or her heat. As much as the joy of winning there, winning together as a team has a different dynamic and there's a joyful dynamic in there. Look at Proverbs 31. How about we go there just real, real quickly as I'm thinking about the joy of marriage. Often we think about this just as the woman. And on this virtuous woman, we just pile all of these accolades and, and all of these things that a, a woman should do. But have you ever considered their relationship, a husband and wife in Proverbs 31? Have you ever considered the husband's role in this relationship? I think it's, it's just smothered with joy. The, the husband says this in verse 29. Verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also and praises her saying, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Do you feel the joy of the husband at that moment? Being like, what a find have I, have I got and she's mine. And, and she has done very well. She has served us very, very well. By the way, for all you kids in here who aren't married yet, so you think about choosing a wife or a husband, there's a big difference between someone being a, a Christian and someone who's a radical Christ follower. A, a Christian you may get through life okay, but a radical Christ follower, I guarantee you, you'll die happy, kids. So look for a radical Christ follower rather than a Christian, lukewarm, whatever. Because you want to be able to say about this one. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. I don't think a husband could say those things without joy in his heart. As she serves him, as she serves the family. Look, look at verse 11. It says, the heart of her husband trusts in her. And you have no lack of, of gain. There is the wife being commended in every way and the husband can just say, yes, I trust. How much more joyful that is than a husband who can't trust his wife? Isn't there joy there? Or think about a wife who can't trust her husband. And by the way, if trust has been broken down, it can take a long time to build that up again. But build it up so that your wife or your husband, whatever, trusts in you. And when there's a, a mutual trust, there is, there is great joy in that. And in fact, as verse 10 says, she is far more precious than jewels. There is joy in marriage, in a Christian marriage, when a, a man is tenderly loving his wife and a wife is joyfully submitting to him. And here's the end of Proverbs. Here's the picture of joy. And you know that even through Proverbs, it speaks about the the, how a marriage can be a curse when it's not there, right? With a contentious woman. Better to live on the corner of a house than with a, a contentious woman. There, there can be strife and conflict, but when there's peace in the home and harmony in the marriage relationship, 
there's pure joy. I don't think any joy surpasses it, save the joy of our salvation. Consider Jesus. He linked joy and serving his bride. You remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, which we'll read here in a, in a week or two when we finish up our, our reading of Hebrews. It said, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was delighted to sacrifice for the church. Yes, it was hard. Yes, he says, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. But he knew of how it was worth it. The joy set before him. And husbands, I just say, it is worth it. Joy to sacrifice for your wives. Well, this is a marriage reminder. Do things this way. Love and respect in appropriate ways. Understand that God has created and designed this thing to work the way we're, we're talking about here, and it will be your joy. So let's pray. Father, I just know the marriages here in this room are in all different places. Some are in a, a very good place today, and some are not in a good place today. I, I pray in your grace, O oh God, that you would, God, help us all to increase in our marriages. God, to, to go better, to go, to go deeper, to be more satisfied than ever in our marriage. What I, I just know also the, the implications for our church and just the, the power of strong families and the strong marriages as a result for our, for our church. And we pray that you would, um, would do that as well. The result of our happiness. God, nothing hurts like marital strife. And nothing blesses like marital bliss. God, so give us that joy and give us that help. I I pray for this art of marriage. I pray that it might bear fruit in people's lives. Uh, I pray, God, that that others not part of our church, uh, particularly even non-Christians, might come and have their world rocked, even as I have had the pleasure to do with other non-Christians before, talking to them about what marriage is and what it's not, and just shifting shifting perspectives. They're all in it for themselves, but the secret is to be in it for your other person, for the spouse. So I pray, God, that you would do your work in us, help us with this little marriage reminder to remind again afresh of what is it you call us to do, what is you call us to picture. We thank you for the scriptures that leave us clear direction. God, the, the scriptures make wise the simple. We are simple people, God. I pray you'd make us wise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.